We're reading this morning from um, Daniel chapter 8, Daniel's vision of a ram and a goat. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as he charged towards the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against him, and none could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between his eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. He came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at him in a great rage. I saw him attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering his two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against him. The goat knocked him to the ground and trampled on him, and none could rescue the ram from his power. The goat became very great, but at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off, and in its place four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came another horn, which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens, and it threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the prince of the host. It took away the daily sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was brought low. Because of rebellion, the host of the saints and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, and the surrender of the sanctuary and of the host that will be trampled underfoot. He said to me, It will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man. And I heard a man's voice from the Ulai calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. As he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me and raised me to my feet. He said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath, because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between his eyes is the first king. The four horns that replace the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation, but will not have the same power. In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a stern-faced king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the mighty men and the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed but not by human power.
The vision of the evenings and mornings that has been given you is true, but seal up the vision, for it concerns the distant future. I, Daniel, was exhausted and lay ill for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. Well, as uh, Ben said earlier, it was, uh, it was great yesterday to, to spend some time at the Worldview graduation. Uh, I felt so at home, actually. There was a lot of crying going on, and uh, I just, I really resonated with that. Uh, so I thought, I thought maybe today, actually, you might just want to keep the door to the cry room open, because uh, I might need to run out there later on. I'm not sure. Actually, I've been reading a book on the theology of sleep, of all things, uh, and one of the comments the guy said is, whoever came up with the, uh, with the expression, sleeps like a baby? <laughs> so, what does that mean? You wake up every two hours and cry and wake everyone else up. Uh, whoever thought that up, clearly, uh, clearly had never had kids. But anyway, there you go. That's another story. Well, uh, we're talking about Daniel this morning. Maybe before we get into that, uh, let me pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word to us. Thank you that uh, you spoke to Daniel all those years ago uh, about his future. And Lord, we pray that as we think about that this morning, that you would strengthen us for the future that lies ahead of us as well. Lord, we pray that in all these things that we would catch a glimpse of your greatness and your power and your authority and your sovereignty uh, over all the world and over our lives. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, if someone could tell you the question, uh, sorry, if someone could tell you the future, I should say, I wonder whether you would want to know it. Would you want to know where you would be in five years' time? Where you'll be living? What job you'll uh, have? Who'll be in government? Whether you'll be married? Whether you'll have kids? What your kids will be doing? Would you want to know whether things will be better in the future or worse? Would you want to know if you're still alive in a year's time? Or in five years' time? Or in ten years' time? Would you want to know if your kids are still alive in a year's time or five years' time or ten years' time? Whenever you watch a show or a film about the future, whether it's, you know, Doctor Who or Back to the Future or whatever it might be, there's always one of those moments where they have that opportunity to see what the future holds for them. And there's always this sense of trepidation, this sense of fear, this question, will I look... Or won't I? Will I see what the future holds or not? Because what if I don't like it? What if the future isn't what you hoped for? What if you glimpse the future and what you see is your own tombstone with your name inscribed on it? Would you want to know the future if someone could tell it to you? Well, in Daniel chapter 8... God tells Daniel the future. He tells Daniel his own future, the future of the world in Daniel's day. And the future that Daniel sees is not the kind of future that he hoped for. It's a largely desolate future. And what's so disturbing about that, I think, is that Daniel's vision of the future is not only, it not only has something to say about 
the future from Daniel's perspective, not just something to say about his future. Daniel's vision has something to say about our future as well. Well, the vision which Daniel sees takes place in the third reign, uh, the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. Belshazzar was the king that we met, uh, if you were here a few weeks ago, in chapter 5 with the writing on the wall. He's the last king of the Babylonian Empire. And it's during his reign that Daniel sees this vision and he sees in his dream these two animals. He sees a ram with two horns and one horn is longer than the other but it grows up later. The ram, we're told in verse 20, represents the Medo-Persian Empire. The Persian part of the empire was originally the smaller part but it grew up later to become the bigger part of that kind of joint empire. In fact, the third year of Belshazzar's reign when this vision is taking place uh, is probably about 550 BC, which is the year when the Persian king Cyrus the Great actually launched his campaign uh, to take over the Median Empire. So as Daniel is receiving this vision, Cyrus is making his move to establish his new great empire. This ram charges in all directions uh, and he does as he pleases. Now I've got a map uh, of, uh, look, today is just full of visual aids, it's fantastic. Uh, look at that, it's a map. Uh, so this is the, uh, the Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, so the Babylonian, I, I forgot my pointer, the Babylonian Empire is really the greenish section there. That was uh, the, more or less the Babylon, Babylonian Empire uh, under Belshazzar's reign. And Cyrus the Great then expanded uh, extensively to the east, uh, to the west, and also into the, in, to the south and to the north of Africa. Uh, you can see where Cyrus started out, Persis or, or, or Persia down, uh, down in this area over here. Uh, and then he, uh, he moved up, took over Babylonia, uh, and of course down into Jerusalem as well. Uh, you can see he did as he pleased. And although he, uh, he also moves across to the east to take over uh, that region, that purple region, uh, he's already in the east from Daniel's perspective. And so, uh, as the vision says, he sweeps across west and north and south as well. Uh, and you can see that he went a long way beyond the borders of the original Babylonian Empire. Uh, and, uh, and so... It's, it's true to say then that uh, nothing stood in his way, in the way of this ram. And while Daniel's still thinking about that ram, suddenly a goat appears with a prominent horn between its eyes and this goat comes from the west, uh, crosses the whole earth and is moving so swiftly that he barely touches the ground. The goat represents the Greek kingdom and the horn represents its first king, Alexander the Great. So again, I've got another map. Uh, so, Luke, do you want to go to the next one? Yep, so this is the uh, campaign of Alexander the Great. So he start, started off in Macedonia, kind of this, well, the region over there anyway, uh, and then crossed, crossed over uh, and uh, then went south to Egypt, first of all, uh, and then back up uh, and across and basically spent the rest of his life, which wasn't very long, campaigning all across through... Uh, over on the east over here. Uh, it was really a lightning raid. Alexander had conquered the Persians in about three years. 
And then, as I said, he spent the rest of his life marauding around the rest of the region. But as God showed Daniel in his dream, at the height of his power, Alexander was cut down. Only 13 years after coming to the throne, he died at the age of 32, one of the greatest uh, kings in, in the ancient world, died at the age of 32. And in his dream, Daniel saw that Alexander would be replaced by four kings, and that's what happened. There's another map, again. Uh, this one's a bit harder to see, unfortunately. But Alexander's kingdom was, uh, was broken down into, uh, into four other kingdoms. There was a tussle for control, which took about 20 years to settle down, with people vying for power, as you can imagine. This map actually shows five uh, kingdoms. There was originally, uh, immediately after his death, there was five, uh, but uh, eventually Antigonus. So you've got uh, Cassander and Lysimachus in the, uh, in the northwest, Antigonus in the middle here, Seleucus and Ptolemy, they're the two big ones. Uh, and eventually the other four kind of banded together against Antigonus and defeated him and, uh, and he was done away with. Uh, and they became the four kind of significant empires uh, following on from Alexander the Great. So in 301 BC, uh, 250 years after Daniel's dream, uh, these four nations came into existence. Well, I don't know... Uh, thanks, Luke, you can put that down for the moment. I, I don't know how much of that you followed. Uh, my, I'm pretty bad with history and geography, and I find it pretty tricky, to be honest, to get my head around some of this stuff. But it's useful to see, I think. It's useful to see for a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all, I think it's a reminder that the Bible is not just a spiritual book. Jacob talked a little bit about that before in terms of the Lord's Supper. It's a, uh, the crucifixion of Jesus is a factual reality. The Bible is not just about a a world disconnected from the real world, a spiritual world. The Bible is a book about real people and real history, about real kings and real nations. It's about things that really happened. God is not just at work in the walls of a church. God isn't just at work when you read the Bible, when you pray, when you do devotions. God is at work in the mechanics of history and of the world. At times we might look around and feel as though Christianity is marginalised, and I think it would have been easy for Daniel to feel that way, wouldn't it? I mean, he was living in a foreign land under a foreign king. There was no temple. Uh, there was no priesthood. All these things that God had given the, uh, his people for the worship of God, all those things were, were, had gone away. It would e be easy for Daniel to feel marginalised. And yet, here is God saying to Daniel, no, you are not marginalised. I am not marginalised. God is not marginalised. He is his and is as in control of history now as he ever was. God is the God of kingdoms and countries. God is the God of history. But secondly, this vision reminds us that God is not only the God of the past, but also the God of the future. God told Daniel about these things 400 years, almost 400 years of some of these events, before they happened. God knows the future. We might not know the future, but God does. Even the things that Daniel was told about the future were pretty sketchy, to be honest. It covers two pages in my Bible, 
And probably the verses that actually speak about the future, there's probably about six of them. It's probably about that much. It's broad brushstrokes. You and I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You don't know where you'll be living. You don't know what job you'll have. You don't know who'll be in government. You don't know whether you'll be married. You don't know whether you'll have kids. You don't know whether things will be better or worse. You don't know whether you'll still be alive. You don't know whether your kids will still be alive. But God knows. And to be honest, that's probably better anyway. I think I'm happy with not knowing and just knowing that God knows. Because God's much smarter than us. And God's much wiser than us. And to be honest, we probably couldn't hold it all in our heads if we did know. And we'd probably be paralysed by knowing the future rather than helped by it. God is the God of history, of real history, in the real world. And God is not only the God of history, he's the God of the future as well. Well, all that stuff about the ram and the goat are really just the entree, though, to this vision. They're really just the beginning. The main course is what happens next. Uh, Alexander's empire, as we've seen, was broken into these four parts, but from one of those parts, from the Seleucid Empire, the one uh, over in the east, from one of those parts, God said that another king would come, another horn, another king, who would begin small but would grow in power. He would be defiant and violent, we're told. So in verse 10, it, that is the horn, this king, will grow until it reached the host of heavens. And it threw some of the starry host down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the prince of the host. It took away the daily sacrifice from him and the place of his sanctuary was brought low. Because of rebellion, the host of the saints and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did and truth was thrown to the ground. That is, this king set himself up against God. This ruler reached for the heavens. It's a way of saying he reached to take the place of God. And he trampled on everything related to God. Two of the key ways that that manifested itself was in attacking God's temple uh, and in attacking God's people. So the sacrifices in the temple were stopped and the sanctuary was desecrated. The people of God were handed over to this king and trampled underfoot. And in 175 BC, a man by the name of Antiochus IV Epiphanes uh, took over the throne of the Seleucid Empire, that, uh, that, that empire in the eastern half uh, of Alexander's kingdom. And Antiochus Epiphanes was certainly one of the more unpleasant characters in history. Epiphanes basically means manifest or God manifest. He was claiming that he was God manifest in the flesh. He was uh, the first Seleucid king to be designated God on his coins. Uh, Luke, do you want to put up the, uh, the coin? Look at this, a coin image. It doesn't get better than that. Uh, actually, one of my lecturers, uh, my fill-in lecturers, was a coin specialist. There you go. Got very excited about coins. So this is a, a picture of uh, one of Antiochus's coins, which says, uh, Basileus Antiochus Theu Pithanu, which means... King Antiochus, God manifest. So there, so he was the first uh, uh, king in this in this empire to to uh, claim to be God come in the flesh. Thanks, Luke. He set himself up to be God. 
He set himself up in the place of God. He also desecrated the temple. After returning from a battle in Egypt, he came back to Jerusalem, he entered the temple, he took the golden altar, the candlestick, and pretty much anything else that was gold. He even scraped some of the gold off the walls, would you believe? (laughs) That's commitment uh, to getting the gold. He put an end to the sacrificial system. He banned it. He set up some kind of abomination uh, on the altar in the temple. According to the first century Jewish historian Josephus, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes set up a statue of Zeus on the altar in the temple. And then he sacrificed a pig, which is kind of like one of the ultimate acts of desecration. He put to death people who refused to comply. If someone was found with the book of the law and they were found to approve it, the king's command was to execute them. Uh, Women were paraded through the streets, uh, women who had had their children circumcised in accordance with the Jewish Jewish law uh, were paraded through the streets. He put to death people uh, who refused to comply. It was a time of incredible brutality, a time of suffering and great persecution. But how does it help us to know that? I mean, it's interesting, maybe. Maybe it's not interesting. But it's happened, right? God told Daniel that it would happen, and it did. So how does it help us? Well, it helps to compare chapter 7 with chapter 8, and to to compare this vision in chapter 8 with Daniel as a whole. Because when we do that, it helps us to see that what happens here in this vision is not a one-off occurrence, but it's actually part of a whole pattern. A pattern of rulers who set themselves up in opposition to God. So you might remember, if you were here last week, uh, there was a boastful antagonistic figure in that vision as well. Another boastful antagonistic horn who set himself up in opposition to God. But that figure belonged to the fourth kingdom. The fourth kingdom described in Daniel, this Boastful king belongs to the third kingdom, the kingdom of Greece. It also helps to realise that what this figure does has already taken place twice in Daniel. So in chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar ransacked the temple. He took things from the temple and put them in the temple of his own gods back in Babylon. In chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar set up an idol to himself that people needed to bow down and worship. In chapter 5, Belshazzar took the items that Nebuchadnezzar had stolen from the temple and Belshazzar used them at his party to worship the gods of gold, silver, wood, stone, iron and bronze. In other words, although Daniel 8 is a a prophecy about a specific figure, Antiochus Epiphanes, it's also just another part of a long line of people who set themselves up in opposition to God. You don't need to look very hard through the history of the world to see that pattern emerge. The 20th century, for instance, played host to some of the most brutal regimes in history. And the rejection of Christianity was a strong feature in those regimes. Stalin in Russia, Kim Il-sung in North Korea, Mao in China, they all did their best to stamp Christianity out. Under Lenin in Russia in 1917, a decree was issued banning the teaching of religion in schools. A few years later, teaching religion to children was banned in any setting. 
whether at home or in a church. No religion could be taught to children. The consequences for disobeying that regulation could include the death penalty. In the same year, the state started looting churches in the same way that Nebuchadnezzar and uh, Antiochus Epiphanes had done with the temple. In one year alone, 2,691 priests were killed, 1,962 monks and 3,447 nuns. In Cambodia, under the Khmer Rouge, 2 million people, I think, were estimated to have died during the reign of terror. Uh, Many of those people were not Christians, but many of them were as well. 90% of the church was killed during those years. Some of those things are still taking place uh, in our present century in places like Iraq and Syria. And while we ourselves don't live under the threats of that violence, there's still a whole host of people who would love to see Christianity stamped out. The title of uh, one of the late Christopher Hitchens' books was God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. There's not a lot of room in that title uh, for a place for Christianity in the public square. The idea is that religion poisons everything and thus it should be got rid of. It should be eradicated. Uh, Christopher Hitchens' brother, Peter, who is a Christian, writes in his own book, secularism disingenuously disguises this relentless reformism as a desire to be left alone by the religious. That is, they want to just be left alone. That's what they say. The religious would in fact happily leave atheists alone if not constantly under pressure to adapt their actions to atheist norms. That is, under the guise of saying we just want to be left alone, what they actually want to do is impose their view, their atheist ideas uh, on society. They want not only to liberate themselves from Christianity, they like Stalin, Mao and plenty of other people before them like Antiochus Epiphanes, They want to entirely stamp Christianity out. God shows Daniel a vision of what is to come in the person of Antiochus Epiphanes. But it is a pattern that is repeated again and again throughout history and it's a pattern which is being repeated still in our day. But not only uh, the... uh, the boastful horns of chapter 7 and chapter 8, patterns that are repeated through history. Uh, Lastly, in the New Testament, they're also understood as a pattern of a single figure who will be worse than all the rest who will appear before the return of Christ. So in the New Testament, a lot of the language from this chapter in Daniel is taken up. Jesus himself takes up the language of the abomination of desolation. Uh, In this chapter, it's called the rebellion of desolation, uh, in, uh, in verse 12, I think it is. Uh, Jesus uses that language to refer to the destruction of the temple in AD 70. So again, something in the pattern of what's happened before, that the temple is destroyed. But Jesus uses it also, it seems, as a, as a kind of a vision of what is to come. The Apostle John writes about antichrists, that is, people who set themselves up in the place of God, 
who set themselves up in opposition to Jesus. And yet he also, he talks about antichrists, plural, he also talks about the antichrist, someone who will be like all the others but somehow much worse. So too Paul talks in 2 Thessalonians about the man of lawlessness, a particularly violent figure who will come in the very last days before the return of Christ. If you've got your Bible still uh, open, turn to, uh, to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So Paul writes there, Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs, that is, uh, the return of Christ. That day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you I used to tell you these things and now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so, do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendour of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. You see, not only is history full of ups and downs, of people and kingdoms who set themselves up in the place of God and in opposition to God, history, we're told, will also contain this one figure who is much worse than all the others. God told Daniel that Antiochus would do his worst for 2,300 mornings and evenings or... 1,150 days, or roughly three and a half years, half of seven years, which is a symbolic amount, which means a significant amount of time, but a limited amount of time. And so too in the New Testament, the Antichrist will be someone who presides over a short but terrible time right before the return of Jesus. That means we ought to be prepared. We ought to be prepared for terrible times. Who knows when that figure will come? Throughout history, people have uh, made their suggestions. This pope or that king or that leader. And they were always wrong. But that doesn't really matter, does it? Because the point is that they were prepared. They were ready for terrible times. And they said to themselves, well, maybe this is it. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? Times more terrible than the times of Antiochus Epiphanes. It's hard to imagine times worse than the reign of Stalin or Lenin. Or Mao. Or Pol Pot. And yet, Jesus says... The Bible says that it will be worse. It's hard to imagine times worse than Iraq or Syria. But if we live during the end, then that's what it will be like. And we need to be prepared. 
Daniel's response at the end of this chapter, I think, is pretty sobering. Verse 27. I, Daniel, was exhausted and lay ill for several days. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. He looks ahead to what is in store for the people of God and he can't understand it. He's exhausted. And to be honest, if we sit and think about this for too long, maybe that's how we'll feel as well. Who knows if we'll live at the end? Maybe the end is already upon us and we don't know. We don't know how the future will pan out. But whatever happens, if we live through terrible times or not, God still wins. There's only the briefest mention of that in Daniel chapter 8. But there is a glimpse, a tiny glimpse in verse 25. There's this prince reigning and then right at the end of verse 25 it says, Yet he will be destroyed, this 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 evil king, he will be destroyed, but not by human power. Long after Daniel lived, a child was born, and God entered our world. Jesus, who drove out demons, who turned back sickness and decay, who defeated Satan at the cross, who conquered death and trampled sin. Jesus heralded the first victory, not by human power, but by the power of God. We don't know what the future holds, but whatever happens, Jesus will win. And the people who know Jesus will win too. I read these verses a few weeks ago from Revelation chapter 7. That vision where John sees this great host circled around the throne of God in heaven. And he wonders, who are these people? And the elder replies, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. We don't know what the future holds, except that the future holds terrible times, both for us as we wait and for those who live in the last days. But those who come out of the great tribulation and wash their robes in the blood of the Lamb will be the people who live with God and in the presence of God for all eternity. Let me pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we, uh, we like Daniel, are sobered by the vision of the future, by the idea that before the return of Christ, things will get worse before they get better. And Lord, it's impossible for us to know when that will be, to know whether those times are already upon us. 
to know whether those days have already begun, to know whether those days will begin in a year or two years or five years or ten years, whether those days will begin in a hundred years or a thousand years, because we know that your patience is so great that you don't desire anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, you wait, and we wait too. But, Lord, whatever the days that we live holds for us, we ask, Lord, that you would help us to trust you. As we see evil kingdoms rise and fall, as we watch our brothers and sisters in Christ suffering under brutal regimes in places like Iraq and Syria, Lord, help us to remember them to pray for them, to suffer with them, to face the future with boldness because we know that whatever evil comes, that it will all be destroyed, though not by our power or any human power, but by the glorious and splendorous coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.